Welcome to the Juniper and Journey podcast with Kaziah Ritter and Lindsay Heslop. We're so thrilled you're here. This is a podcast dedicated to celebrating the strength and stories of women, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful in their own words. We believe in the power of real conversations, honest confessions, and playful nostalgia. You'll get to hear all kinds of perspectives from all kinds of women about all kinds of things. We'll talk about life and motherhood and loss and faith. We'll reminisce about the good old days, first loves, and old flames. This is going to be fun. Things might get a little rowdy, but we can guarantee it will be meaningful. We hope each woman's story inspires you towards empathy, compassion, and healing. Okay, let's get started. Today, my sweet friend Dee is joining us, and Dee is, she's just a special human. Like, you are just pure sunshine, and I feel like you are just such a source of light and life, and you have been since I've known you, which, and that has just never changed. So, Dee, welcome. Thanks for having me, Linz. That is so nice. What an intro. <laughs> for real. I could, just I've great. known you for what? Six minutes? Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying yes. This is all true. It's true. She's the real deal. That, that is all accurate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh. Well, Dee and I, we danced together in college. So we met at CU. Sco Buffs. Sco Buffs. And <laughs> I can't, I always just have to work it in. And Dee was like the heartbeat of our team. So she's such an encourager. She's always the one who would like keep us connected to each other and also remind us like, I know you want to hate each other right now, but like you do really love each other. <laughs> so Dee, um, you're just wonderful. And I'm so excited to get to Lens. Yeah, hold space for your story. So give us just a quick intro, like who you are, what you do, what life looks like right now, a little bit about you. Sure. Um, I feel like that's a very existential question, and I feel like I've been having an existential crisis since college, like maybe twice a year. But um, okay, who am I? Who am I? I am D. Thanks for having me. I'm in my upper 20s now, um, living COVID, work from home life as a graphic designer. By trade, um, I like to think I'm a little writer on the side. I got a lot of passions, y'all, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a dancer, dance with Linz, like she said, back when we were buffs. You know, at the end of the day, I like to think that I'm a friend, I'm a daughter, I'm a big sister, I'm a partner. And so I think that's what I like to pride myself on. That's who I am. I love, love it. it. <laughs> so good. So tell us a little bit about your family and, and who you are and where you come from in that way. Sure. Um, I am the oldest of four. I have two younger sisters and a baby brother who's 18, so not a baby. And my parents um, were an immigrant family. We came from China when I was five. And so I think that's always important to put in because the idea of my family is never normal to me, just in relationship to, you know, how I grew up and where I went to school and all that. Um, or I grew up in Aurora, Colorado, also known as A-Town. And uh, yeah, my grandma lives with us, um, my grandma on my mom's side. And so that's kind of the family setup that we have. I'm so excited to get to talk about this piece with you and this unique part of your journey in being a Chinese American woman. We'll kind of get to some of this, but that has been a journey for you is even, I think, arriving at this place mm. where you're like, this is an important piece of who I am and how I understand myself. 
but maybe backing up quite a bit. Can you describe maybe just some moments, whether it was childhood or adolescence, like when you felt maybe other or when you noticed that like there's something different here maybe about me and my family? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even answering this question just a year ago, I don't think I would have been able to give you answers. I think a lot of things in 2020 have shook the world and shook me personally for me to do a lot of digging and a lot of healing and a lot of learning about myself and maybe a lot of unlearning as well. But I'd say I always thought I was weird. Like I'm a weirdo. I am. (laughs) It is what it is. I love your weird. (laughs) Thank you. Very kind. Very accepting. What a safe space. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I've always felt like a weirdo. And I think um, I've internalized that since I was very young, just knowing I looked different from anyone I know. Um, I immigrated here when I was five. And I'd say I remember every step of that journey. And before I immigrated here, I grew up with only my grandma in China. I was born in Japan, grew up a little bit in China without my parents. And then my parents met my grandma in China before we all immigrated to the States. So I feel like in a lot of my developmental years, I was just, you know, raised by my grandma, came to the States. It was very like abrupt all of a sudden, I saw blondes and blue eyes, and y'all, I thought I was a Martian, okay? I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, this language I didn't know. I started learning English in kindergarten. But I remember, like, teachers would be like, everybody, go back to your desks. And I'm, like, the only one sitting down on this rug, and I'm like, could have gave me a heads up. Like, <laughs> I just, a lot of communication barriers and whatnot, And then growing up, I knew that I made all the appointments. I did a lot of translating. I went to the bank with my mom. Um, I read all the letters, every letter that came to the house. So I knew my friends weren't doing that. (laughs) And so it was something that I can't be like, well, do you not know how much your parents make? Like, do you not do your bank statements and write checks for your mom? Do you not sign checks for your mom? Is that, was I allowed to tell you that? You know? (laughs) And so I think just growing up, I think I had to grow up pretty quickly in order to kind of mitigate a little bit of the immigration experience for my parents. I mean, they gave up everything for my family to be here. It's an honor to help my parents, but um, I just knew deep down, like I had a very separate um, experience from what, you know, my peers did in school. Was that something that you found yourself keeping separate? Did you kind of find you had this dualism happening? Definitely. I definitely um, kept a lot of that private, not because, you know, I didn't find shame in it yet. It was a very natural experience for me. Just it's all I knew growing up, like the translation part, you know, a lot of responsibility. But I guess I never talked about it with my friends. I just knew like people would hang out after school, go to sleepovers, which is like weird as heck. You know, in Chinese culture, you do not go to someone's house to sleep when you have a house yourself. (laughs) And so I remember my mom being like, why would, why? And I'm like, "Mm." she was like, we got a house right here. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think I did live a very like dichotomous life. And uh, in hindsight, just thinking back, I just kept home as home and school as school. I didn't know how to navigate the in-between or describe it to anyone. But I guess both were pretty normal to me, but I knew I felt like Hannah Montana. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you had two lives. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Being five and immigrating here, was that experience, do you remember that as as traumatic? Or were you curious? Or like, how do you, how do those memories exist for you? Mm-hmm. 
I think in the past year, I've had to, you know, reflect a lot on that. And um, I think there is some trauma with that. But I've always just bundled up that experience with a lot of love and joy. And just I knew the foundation and the source of that is a lot of opportunity. And I know what my parents had to give up in order for that to happen. We call it third culture, where you, you know, grow up from a different culture than your family. And you kind of grow up in a different place than where you're raised or you have a lot of, you know, your years happen. It is kind of foreign to me where I feel like most of my life I kind of repress that and I never talk about it. Because again, it was a very foreign, alien experience that no one else I can relate to really. Can You know, we, we can't vibe on like immigration, you know? <laughs> it's not something I vibe with my friends with. Sure. On, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. When you were five and that was happening, your this huge thing for your family, do you remember how your parents... How did they describe it to you, what you were doing? Yeah, how did they communicate what was going on to a five-year-old? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, in the Chinese culture, communication, I'm still trying to tap into it. And the the most efficient way to express things in Chinese, um, a lot of things are kind of arbitrary, like this is the way it is. And it's happening. So I remember my grandma was like, you're going to America with your parents and I'm like what you mean <laughs> like okay and I remember the day before I flew out to the states from Guangzhou I pretended I had a huge stomach ache because then I thought you know I wouldn't have to go on the plane like that's too bad <laughs> it's too bad <laughs> so I was like oh my stomach hurts I made my grandma like rub my belly all night she's like girl I you know that's right <laughs> she's like I know exactly what you're pulling But yeah, it just kind of happened. And I think um, growing up Chinese, there's a very disciplinary cadence to life. You kind of get told what happens and you assimilate. You don't really fight back and whatnot. But I remember, I think I was like deeply saddened because everything I knew up till I was five was like gone in the split of (laughs) an airplane ride. And so everything was just kind of a restart for me from then on. So then talk about navigating peer relationships. Like, how did you navigate that, especially in adolescence, I think? Like, (laughs) we have talked about on the podcast how middle school is, like, such a tragic time to be alive. (laughs) True, true. Um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think even before middle school, when I did a lot of translating, just to get, like, errands done or at the DMV, I found a lot of... um, like discrimination toward my parents. And sometimes I think that would be hard to translate back to them what she just said. Or I'm like, you know, if someone gives attitude, like, don't be smart with me. And I'm trying to tell my mom what she said. I'm like, um, she said, like, do not be intelligent with her. <laughs> I don't know. It was just um, funny little nuances I think about now. But I think as a young kid, I've always been made fun of. But, you know, people stretching your eyes. They couldn't say my name. So my legal legal name is Dongwen Lang. Um, it sounds completely different in Chinese. And, you know, as Lindsay introduced me as D, it's just what I, it's who I am now. It's the Americanized version of me and the identity I decide to take on. But no one could say my name for some reason, or people would butcher it, or people, I'm going to call you DW instead. I didn't have a choice. Like, I didn't want to be Arthur's little sister. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but um, I So th- will you say your name? 
Yeah, uh, sure. It's Leung in Cantonese. We put our surname or family name first, which has a lot to do, you know, semantically and culturally. Like we put, always put family first um, in Chinese culture. So yeah, it's Leung Dongman. And I love it in Chinese. There's a lot of honor and pride with that. Dongwen Lang doesn't, it does not translate the same, y'all. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess after a whole childhood of you know, it being mocked or like people like ding dong or just call me dong. I think I I went with the punches for a while, probably up till college even. I even made fun of my own name just to like chill or keep the peace or, you know, I, there was so much internalized shame with that growing up and I didn't really know or have the space to talk about it. And that was like a detriment to my identity. It's, found, it, it's my name. It's how I identify myself. So I found a lot of that growing up. And then in adolescence, my mom would make these bomb, it's called zhong, and the best way I can describe it is like Chinese tamales. I would bring that to school, but I remember people had like white cheddar puffs, and it was the first time <laughs> I saw freaking cheese in like a puff form, and I was like, You're like what is this what? sorcery? <laughs> yes, and jello in like plastic tube, and I was like, yo, I don't know what these people are eating, but I remember them being like, Zhang Wen, what are you eating? I said, don't worry about it. It smelled umami, okay? And, you know, <laughs> people were eating ham and cheese sandwiches. So it was just a little different. And I think I I started to understand, like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm so embarrassed. Like, people thought that was weird instead of different. I think that's how I internalized and lived most of my years, I would say. Honestly, up until, like, I was maybe 25. Gosh, that piece about your name is so deeply personal. Mm. And, and like you said, so tied to how I understand myself, how the world understands me, how I introduce myself to the world. So for years, even you felt like there was complication around your name, like mm-hmm. who you are. So I can imagine that that being so challenging. Sure. It's something I've found like pride and a lot of love for now. And I so much more appreciation now than me growing up. I was like, I wish my name was Sarah or Haley, just something easy, okay? Um, I've had, you know, a lot of nicknames growing up. And my cousin who tutored me back then, she, <laughs> I was like, can you tell my teacher, like, my name is Barbie? Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is me in first grade. And she's like, um, maybe not Barbie. What about, like, Bobby? And I said, absolutely, close enough. So honestly, in only a few of my friends know this story. But first and second grade, I went by Bobby Lang. Bobby went to ESL. <laughs> you know, they write out your name in like these big puffy letters, B-O-B-B-I-E. So that was me. And then in third grade, I was like, I don't know. It doesn't even sound like Barbie. And, you know, just thinking back, I wanted to, my name to be Barbie, the like poster child for right. Americanized beauty. Um, so it's just kind of funny. I laugh about it now. So how did that transition as an adult because now you can talk about it this way and you can and you love your real birth name and you're proud of it what helped you walk through that I think after college I did a little bit of traveling and I was like oh my gosh I've been living in this bubble my whole life and I just let it happen because I I've been so like I succumb to the masses I'm I'm not very outspoken and after traveling I saw so many worldviews and I started learning a little more about myself and my little siblings I think would be you know my push for this but I've always wanted to be a great role model but they have brains of their own they're they're great on their own 
And I was like, I would hate for them to kind of grow up internalizing the shame and this embarrassment that I felt all these years. They're fine. They're, they are so woke and they school me on a lot of stuff <laughs> nowadays. Um, but I was just like, I need to stop being like this. You know, I, I have to be confident and kind of respect my roots and where I came from, seeing my parents work so hard. And, you know, I'm a college graduate. Like, all these things have gotten me here to where I am today. And, like, how come I can't face myself with this name or, you know, why I look the way I look? And I found a lot of peace this past year with the whole social injustice movement. It's really made me force myself to kind of, like, understand my story before I speak out for others and speak out for a whole community, you know, of people of color. And so I think... That was amazing. I'm still learning. I'm still going. I'm still processing and healing. But um, I think just these factors, and I owe it to myself, I think. Was there a moment, like a kind of a catalyst moment for that, where you just felt like, I just can't keep going the way things are? I think I had a conversation with my little sister, and she was the one that was like, girl, you can't keep hating on yourself like this. At the time, I was trying out for these dance teams, and I was my lack of confidence really showed through. And I would always never bring up my culture, never bring up anything that made me a little too different. And people, you know, get scared, you know. And my little sister, May's her name, she's like, scare them. Like, what are you <laughs> scared of? Like, scare them. You know, this is, this is who we are. And I think in that moment, moment in time, she was like my big sister. And I was like, I need to show up. I need to show up. When do you feel the most misunderstood? I think it started when I was very young. I would, I'm not a loud person as it is. Well, I've been kind of loud since coming in today, but <laughs> <laughs> I grew up, I feel like almost mute. Like I'd be so shy, um, just so scared of everything, super timid. And I remember answering one of my teacher's questions and this boy next to me like heard my heard my answer but the teacher didn't say my answer so he rose his hand he's like um miss it's you know it's whatever it, it's four the answer is four and I remember being like oh my god I just got cheated out of my points and so as a kid I just kept a lot to myself and um almost like a gatekeeper of my own thoughts and ideas and whatnot and I think that cultivated into just like this repressed bundle of thoughts and streams of consciousness and whatnot just because of fear of like I always feel like I will always be the last one or someone else will always steal opportunity from me and that was instilled as a very young kid coming back to your question I felt very misunderstood just the way society is I feel like systems don't really work for me um, systems don't really work for quiet people, people who think differently, um, people who look differently. And so it's just kind of been like this internal battle I've had most of my life, really. And and I guess even, even now. Could you describe bumping up against one of those systems? Absolutely. I think even now, in media, in representation, whether it's literature, you know, moving media, Okay, in the Black Lives Movement that really took off on America last, I want to say like early summer, um, one of my friends was affected by some content that went out on social media, and it really affected her. And she's black. She's very proud to be black. And as a friend, my first instinct is to, is to make sure she's okay. 
and um, while fighting the system, and it was in her place of work. And so while helping her fight the system, I try to speak up and whatnot. I just realized that big organizations aren't there yet. You know, there's so much racism is not lost within big brands and organizations and companies. And no matter what they say, saying, you know, a blanket statement of we are as inclusive as it gets, there's so much um, hidden under the rug. In that regard, um, representation in big companies um, just isn't there, period, for people of color. Um, I can say that, you know, as an NFL cheerleader, I'm one of the two Asians on my team. I can say that if I were to look up organizations right now, you know, how many people of color are on the front of calendars? Who is the poster child? I'll look at Pro Bowl, um, things like that. Especially as an Asian American, there's something called the bamboo ceiling, very much like the glass ceiling for women. And it's where, you know, yes, you can be accepted into a role in our business or organization, but there's a huge misconception that, you know, you're just a worker bee, you put your head down, you do work, you do good work, but it's really hard for them to make it into leadership. So I think with where I, I'm at in my career, you know, my passions that I enjoy on the side, I, I feel the struggle to fight that every day where, you know, I'm seen to do good work, but I'll never be, you know, the best of the best, or you'll never put me as the face of your company. So what has been... Also, are we going to side sweep the NFL cheerleader? Oh no, thing? let's go in. Let's go <laughs> yes, there. She's yep. a Broncos no, cheerleader. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So you just said we're going to go back <laughs> that you are an NFL cheerleader. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I know that dance has been a part of your life because we dance together. Yes. So tell us in this piece of like growing up, assimilating this third culture you're talking about. Mm. Where does dance show up for you in all of that? I'll backtrack real quick. Right when we moved here, the first apartment we ever had, there was a studio right across the street, which was next to a Target. So my mom would always walk to Target and I would always pass ballet class. And I was like, that is the most beautiful, gorgeous sport like anyone could ever do. Pink tutus, like look at those point shoes. Like I just saw it as so much, there, there was so much beauty in ballet and I was just, I didn't even understand it. My mom put me in a month of ballet, but... It was too expensive, okay? Like, we were not making big bucks <laughs> when we came here. So I was like, Mom, it's all good. I would look up YouTube videos, kind of growing up just watching dance and just being so perplexed. In high school, I decided to try out for the Palms team with my best friend. We had no idea what Palms was, okay? Literally, I have never danced a day in my life. I did musical theater in middle school. We just got done with Wizard of Oz, like, rehearsals ran to our high school and we showed up we showed up to palms tryouts thinking they these were the cheerleaders that held palms oh my gosh it's just so funny how naive we are <laughs> um but i would say that's the beginning of my dance journey in high school just so awkward but bless i was just so naive and ignorance was bliss and i think i just soaked up as much of dance training as i could at a high school that did not win championships. A lot of love, a lot of love for my girls, but we didn't, <laughs> we were not winning nationals or, you know, training at the best studios. I was so enamored by the way people moved and musicality. So I started practicing in my basement. Okay. I took some jazz shoes, went to Safeway because they had floors that were slippery. And then um, college came around. I knew I wanted to keep dancing. 
Um, I submitted this dance tryout video to CU because they had just won top three at nationals and that was huge. And I loved Palm, you know, nothing could stop me from dancing. I was like, absolutely. I think I was just such a joyous kid with dance. I don't know how I made it. (laughs) I made CU and I think CU like kicked me in the butt. It was the most intense training I've ever had. I felt like I was a detriment to the CU dance team because everyone was so talented. They danced since they were young. I saw people that we competed against in high school. They were like the untouchables, okay? Vista girls, I am looking at you. (laughs) Um, It was an honor to have danced with, you know, the people that we did at CU. I gave myself the biggest imposter syndrome. And I thought, you know, I thought our coach changed our competition dance from a quad to a triple because I didn't do it. When I was done, I knew I wanted to keep going. And I guess pro was the only way you could. So yeah, tried out for a few teams in the state. Definitely did not make any of the teams my first try. I just kept dancing. It gives me joy. And I feel like the moment I'm on the dance floor, <laughs> I'm like, the moment I'm on the dance <laughs> Get floor. Get it on the dance floor. Right. You know, people are like, dance like nobody's watching. I'm like, everyone watch me. <laughs> I feel like it's the only place where I can like walk out or do a routine and feel 100% confident with myself. I don't know. It brings me so much joy. I'm so happy when I do it. Because I think it is fascinating and amazing that you are a Broncos cheerleader. Give us kind of maybe an inside, like what was auditioning like? What was stepping on the team like? Um, thank you. You were too nice. Um, <laughs> I tried out for the Broncos three times. I made it my third time trying out. It's like the biggest dream come true. I remember my rookie season. I was bawling. Okay. When they called my number, I think I froze. I think something came over me. I was paralyzed. I think I wanted to puke, to sleep. <laughs> to cry all at the same time. No, it's great. I had a lot of support. Um, But just the process, it's a lot of choreography, um, a lot of interviewing, football tests, and prepping. Um, There's a certain style that the Denver Broncos cheerleaders encompass when they take the field and, you know, a certain style you have to kind of groove with when you're in the chaps and whatnot. But no, game days are very special and I'm very proud of this achievement. I know a lot of hard work went into it. I'm not even gonna lie. I get like tears in my eyes a little bit just thinking about the first time coming out of that tunnel. Um, It never changes. There's so much adrenaline. And like I said, I'm like, dance like everyone's watching you, Dee Dee. Okay. (laughs) I, I just get so excited. I yell out everyone's names. The music, there's a little bit of pyro. And I think, you know, in the 500s, no one's seeing me, you know. <laughs> no one cares. <laughs> but to me, that's like the biggest moment in that time. And I think it's like one of the only times I'm ever fully present, which I need to work on that. But I, I'm fully present in that moment. And I'm like fully embracing and soaking up every single millisecond, every single beat. And I'm like doing extra hips. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I feel good. Yeah, <laughs> It's fantastic. <laughs> what is maybe a common misconception about being an NFL cheerleader? Yeah, um, maybe past the, you know, cute outfits and the hair. There's not much to you, not much depth. I'm here to challenge that. Um, I think there's more depth to me than like putting lashes on and um, 
putting on, you know, cute little outfit. To me, there's a lot of celebration in being, you know, a beautiful woman who can do many things. And we do a lot with the youth. We do a lot in the community. And I think being able to put on chaps and having that as my superhero outfit. You know, when a kid thinks I'm so much cooler if I have chaps on <laughs> than if, you know, I'm not. Do you think that little girl that you talked about sitting there and having that boy kind of steal your answer, could you look at her and be like, guess what <laughs> you're going to do later in life? You kind of had this experience where your voice was stolen from you in that moment. And then now you get to literally use your voice to encourage. What would you say to that, that little girl? You made a girl. <laughs> no, I think about her a lot, a lot, a lot. And sometimes I want to give her a big hug. Like, um, I think she is a huge driving force into like who I am now. Still working on this, you know, still working on it again, um, who I'm becoming. But I think about her a lot. And I, sometimes I imagine her if she was my daughter or if she if she was my little sister. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I need to really pull it together for her. It's really cool to think back and see how far she's come. <laughs> and now, you know, still trying to find my voice, but at least I'm not scared to use it. What are some of the things that you're passionate about getting to use your voice for? Um, That's a great question. I think to me, representation really matters. I wish when I was that little girl, there was some guidance or North Star to how to think or just someone to tell me that it was okay. And so now, you know, wherever a conversation is invited, I love to use my voice as a woman of color and to share that experience. Um, so whether it be for racial equity, social injustice, I think environmental justice is very important to me as well. And I like to give these points of view as a woman of color, not just like any woman, but like as a Chinese American, as me, as my experience. What are things that you do or that you've come to learn or that you've kind of started to embrace as how do you honor this part of who you are and your culture and your heritage? Like what are things about D today that you do specifically to honor that piece of you? I think whenever I get the chance, I make my partner, he's a Brit. <laughs> he doesn't know a lot about Chinese culture. I take every inch of opportunity I can to educate him or be like, hey, try this. My mom made this. Anytime where I feel welcome to share any part of me, whether that's language or food or my family, I think I push that. To me, it's only brought reward. And so all this internalized shame and hesitation I had as a kid, it's just kind of gone now. I'm not I'm not that embarrassed to share. I'm like, you need to have my mom's tamales. They're called zong, but I know. I should have. I should have came in with that. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> what is helpful as two white women sitting with you? What is helpful from your white peers and white friends? I think something even just like this, the opportunity for you guys to hold space for me to share my story, that is so sacred to me. I'll never forget it. I'm super thankful. I think the promise of allyship, just always listening and willing to fight with communities that need that need it, who maybe who aren't as privileged. And occasional check-ins, you know, if you see your friends 
who who maybe struck a little more than um, we all are with the news and whatnot. Um, but I think allyship goes a long way and just showing you're there for them, just that stable relationship and support, I think just means the world. I think another thing that's helpful is um, when we all do research, don't leave it to, you know, uh, people of color or the BIPOC community to have to do a lot of the explaining or the training or to give resources, um, you know, kind of hold, I, I've tried to hold myself really accountable during Black Lives Matter movement to how to fully show up for, yeah, my friend and my black friend who was hurt the way she was. Tell us now a little bit about like some of your creative side gigs. I feel like you have you're so creative and I feel like you've always had like a little passion project or something that you're working on. So tell us about that and kind of like, what is your hope? What is your hope or your dream for, for what those accomplish like in the world? My goal since I was young was like, girl, you got to change the world. But that's, <laughs> I think that's a big dream. Um, so we can only do as much as we can. Eh? Um, I run two companies right now um, in eco-friendly stationary company. I used to always go to Hallmark aisle at Target and there'd be some weird haiku and, you know, in the middle of a card or I'm like, ah, I don't love that. Not my best sentiment that I would give. And I was like, one day I'm just going to create an affordable line of greeting cards. Make them cool. Make them cute. Bring back snail mail. Um, but do it with a very sustainable business model. And so I run that. It's called Chuffed. Um, it means to be delighted or, you know, happy. It's an ode to my partner, who's a Brit. <laughs> like, he'd be chuffed about that. <laughs> right. right, right. And then I've just recently launched a plant shop. Um, I found plants to be super healing and teaching us how to grow and take care of one another and about nurture. And it's, and it's been such a rewarding experience that scale it up okay so i just want to get more plants into people's homes more people to experience that magic and that healing process and that journey of self-care and so that's called a jungle abode and again with a very sustainable business model and um donating part of the proceeds to causes that fight the climate crisis because your girl's got eco anxiety <laughs> absolutely absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Um, like most of my life, I don't feel like there's a niche out there for me. So I feel like I just got to go and do it. If I can't find it, I suppose I'll go and do it. Maybe people will like it. Maybe people, people don't, but I would buy my own cards. I would buy my own plants and, um, just kind of create that space for maybe the other outliers <laughs> in life and whatnot. When you were growing up and kind of working through all of this, did you ever have anyone that you were like, there's someone I can relate to, um, whether it was a peer or a teacher or or somebody kind of removed in, you know, a celebrity kind of way or something. Yes, um, this is a great question because I'll introduce her. <laughs> no, she's not here, but um, her name's Nika and she's my very best friend in the world. Um, we're the same age. We met in middle school and she's Russian, and we found out we immigrated to the United States within two months of each other. So that's wow. kind of been our holding ground. And since middle school, she's called me D. I think I took that with me, and in college when I wanted a fresh start, or like I was so embarrassed to introduce myself to the dance team, I remember Farron's like, is it D, like the letter, or you want to spell that? I'm like, just like, you can just call me D. It's, it's cool. It's cool. <laughs> you know, um, my homegirl Nika, she's like really been a great anchor for me. 
uh, throughout all this. And I think I do talk to her about the immigration experience and about race a little bit. Um, she's been awesome. And I've been lucky to have really great educators, you know, grown up and a really supportive friend circle. What is spirituality like for you? Is that something that you've embraced in your life? Has your culture and where you're from influenced that curiosity in you? Definitely. I grew up, um, my parents are both Buddhist. They never forced religion on my siblings or I. And growing up in the States, everyone around me was Christian. Probably still is. Um, Christian, like we would stand and do the pledge. And I'm like, who's under God? <laughs> and I saw people, you know, wearing crosses. And I was like, I think I'm going to wear a cross necklace. I remember going home one day, I was like, mom, um, asking her if I could buy a cross necklace. And she was like, you can do whatever you want. Like, I admire her so much now, just understanding where she came from, that she just lets me kind of believe what I want, do what I do. Um, in college, I actually don't even know if anyone knows this, but I double majored in communication and Chinese. I never put the Chinese even on my resume because, again, just people would think, oh, okay, she double majored in Chinese. Just I feel like there's so many stereotypes and stigmas just right there. But I had to take a ton of Eastern religions class, and I think – Buddhism and learning more about that religion and philosophy, it's more of a way of life for me. You teach yourself compassion and being present and enlightenment. And I think that has spoke to me and resonated with me um, the most. So I would consider myself a Buddhist. I don't know everything on it, but again, still learning every day. And um, I find that very close to home for me. So what's your relationship like now with your parents? It's good. <laughs> no, yeah. um, I think growing up, there wasn't as much closeness. It was more of like a, I'm going to do what they tell me. I respect them a ton and not much affection is shown. That's just Chinese culture for you. But they're big softies now, okay? And especially, the, I don't live at home and they show their love through food. Every time I visit home, I get I get my groceries done, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I don't leave the house empty-handed. They have Tupperware. They have, you know, the latest installment of the fruit section at the store. <laughs> um, I think it's great now, and they've kind of assimilated a little bit into Western culture, just the the laid-back aspect of it. They're not as big tiger parents anymore. I think when I was young, they were just more of my, like, direction givers. We weren't as close. I still love them, love them more than anything. I just didn't have that um, affectionate or like, I don't know, the nourishing side to it. Um, I was disciplined very, very hard, I'd like to say, um, more than my little siblings. And I tell them that a lot. Mm -hmm, the oldest, yep. it ain't easy out here. Uh, but yeah, I yeah, I love that question, just seeing how they are now and how chill they are. I'm like, dad, you are not the dad I grew up with. But, but that's beautiful. Totally. I think, you, yeah. You know each other differently now, too, in your <laughs> adulthood, which is, For sure. I think, special. And that, that relationship has evolved as you all have yeah. also grown as individuals. Absolutely. But still stayed a family together. The American dream right there. <laughs> <laughs> so what gets you out of bed in the morning? I think knowing that I have 12 hours well, now I need like nine hours of sleep. This is like post-college when I was like surviving on three. But <laughs> <laughs> I 
um, just like the chance to make an impact or I hope to make an impact or say something nice or write something down. I have a whole like morning ritual that I find a lot of joy in. Make some matcha, you know, five minute journal. I don't, there's so much joy to life. I am naturally and innately excited to wake up and start the day. Obviously my cats, coffee, all the above. But um, I think just the chance to like breathe and be alive. And I just never take that for granted. What is the thing that keeps you up at night? Oof. We might be here for a while. <laughs> um, no, I think the biggest thing is the environment. Like I said, I have eco-anxiety. And so I feel like I'm always on a countdown to when our planet <laughs> kind of overheats. And <laughs> then none of this even matters, y'all. None of this even matters. Yeah, how do we sustain ourselves in this planet for as long as we can? I honestly do go to bed thinking that I might need help, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dee, thank you so much for coming and for sharing, um, honestly, just this like incredible journey that you've lived and experienced with us. Um, we feel so grateful and I just adore you. So thanks yeah. so, so much. Thank you very much. Oh my gosh. I love y'all already. Awesome. I love y'all. <laughs> thank you for giving me the time. Space to do it. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Juniper and Journey podcast. If you heard something that resonated with you or that you have questions about, we would love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Juniper and Journey and slide into our DMs. It would be our treat and total privilege to chat with you. We all have a story. If you're interested in sharing yours here on the podcast, please reach out. Bye for now. Cheers. Cheers.